Hi, I'm Michael Wiafe. And I'm Demetria Wack. Welcome to PolicyWise, a podcast from Youth Leadership Institute in collaboration with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisor, where we challenge assumptions, discuss, and question policy to find out, is this policy wise? Each episode, we invite current and rising policy leaders to discuss current events, social issues, and political topics in order to promote youth voice and establish a model of intergenerational policy discussions. Today, we will discuss ways in which we can save our planet and dive into the broad topic of sustainability. With us, we have Grant Mack and Ellie Arsbecker. So Ellie is a first-year undergraduate student at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, Originally from Sacramento, she became involved in environmental advocacy groups in high school and helped organize youth-centered sustainability events. She sat on advisory committees and is a member of California Forward's Youth Advisory Council and working alongside the rest of the team um, to bring youth voice to the 2020 Economic Summit. Um, Ellie, you are much younger than I am, not actually that much younger, but have accomplished so much more than I did when I was your age. Um, So Ellie, would you, would you like to add more to your introduction? Sure, yeah. Thank you, Michael and Debbie, for having me. Um, as Michael said, I'm Ellie Arsbecker. I use the she, her pronouns, um, and I am a freshman at Berkeley studying conservation and resource studies. I got involved in activism not too long ago, um, spring of last year in Sacramento, and I was involved in a few orgs there, just planning a lot of youth-centered sustainability events and supporting campaigns in Sacramento related to climate change. Um, I think most notably, I was on the um, Health and Climate Resiliency Technical Advisory Committee for the Mayor Steinberg's um, Commission on Climate Change. And then in 2019, I presented at the closing plenary of the Behavior, Energy and Climate Change Conference with a couple other youth advocates. So I'm really excited to be here and get into this. Thank you, Ellie. Um, And next we have Grant, um, who currently serves as a Senior Legislative Consultant for Electricity and Gas Policy Matters at the California Public Utilities Commission, where he provides the agency policy's perspective on energy legislation and helps shape its evolution through the state's legislative process. Grant also previously served as the Energy Policy Advisor and Chief Policy Advisor to to the Chair of the California Energy Commission. Grant served as an Executive Fellow, worked as the Center for Sustainable Energy, and as a Policy and Regulatory Analyst. And as well, he also served as the Student Body President at San Diego State University um, and received his master's in public policy and administration from California State University, Sacramento. Thanks, Demi. I appreciate it. Well, as you said, my name is Grant Mack. I go by the pronouns him and he. I've been really involved in energy and environmental policy matters for really the better part of the last 10 years or so. Um, going back to my freshman year in college, which I'm happy to, to elaborate upon, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today with Ellie and both of you to really dive into you know, the very interdisciplinary and broad topic of sustainability and I know we'll get more into climate change and what that means, you know, individually and even to people here in California. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and thank you both for, for accepting the invitation and joining us for the conversation today. Uh, I'm going to start off with a question that, you know, really, I think uh, everyone listening could probably think of that one topic that um, they're really passionate about and could think of a couple moments of which, uh, you know, remind them of why they're they're passionate about it. So Ellie, how did you get involved with environmental justice efforts? I guess, what were some of the moments when it sparked for you? Yeah, um, I mean, it was definitely a process. I remember last year, it really clicked for me after I heard Greta's speech at the 2019 Economic Forum. I mean, it's kind of sad, but it really hit me like a train. I guess I was always kind of conscious of this issue, but it really struck me just how urgent this is. 
But I think what really defined me becoming an activist in this space was going to a climate strike. You can feel it in the air and the water and the trees around us as they're slowly dying. I mean, being in Sacramento, there's always something going on. And uh, I just wanted to like introduce, this is Eleanor Arsbecker. She wrote a poem. I was kind of pressured by my friends to go like share a little poem on stage at the strike. And I think that really opened the doors for me in terms of like recognizing that I didn't just have to like sit with my fear or my sadness about climate change. And I could really, you know, channel that into action. When the apocalypse begins, when humanity is over, when? And what for? So from there, I was just so many doors open and so many opportunities to get more involved. The fight will be for survival, everyone's survival, and the fight is now. Thank you. I'm sure that it was an extremely impactful moment. And, and Grant, same question. What were some of the moments that really shaped your passion for this topic? Growing up, going back to even like middle school, school and high school I was really interested and always been very interested in like social sciences learning about you know economics political science government policy you name it but you know it's such a broad kind of inter interdisciplinary area and I didn't really know where to focus my like time and attention but it drove me and encouraged me to get really involved um, my freshman year in, in college early on so I got involved in student government and I was like yeah I know I want to be involved in government I know I want to help solve problems I want to help people I want to you know do what we can do we got to improve the world and provide opportunities opportunities for, for everyone around us. But I really started to focus more of my attention toward addressing environmental issues, really through conversation with students. Um, you know, I, I met a couple of really passionate, thoughtful, you know, brilliant students in my mind that were about a year or so older than me. They were sophomores in college at the time. And they, you know, started to, to really impart some knowledge on me about some of the major environmental challenges that we were facing around the world, whether it's water pollution, you know, air contamination, soil degradation, and biodiversity loss, you know, so on and so forth. And it all kind of culminated into the way in which, you know, human society is impacting the climate. And once I started to learn and recognize these problems, I think we collectively started to acknowledge that, wow, like these are problems. They're happening at the local level. They're happening at the state level, nationally and globally. And when we look around the university at the time, San Diego State wasn't really doing anything to address those issues. I mean, let alone not even recognizing it. And so I think that really motivated me to say, look, we could use use, you know, our passion and interest in policy and student government to help drive change and solve some of these problems here on a university campus and not only encourage the university to reduce its environmental impact, but also in, impart some knowledge onto students and others around the university to really think about these issues and how to address them. Um, so that was really kind of how my journey started. I think with everything right now with this global climate movement and, and this massive youth uprising it's um just the political involvement of youth right now is just so much more mainstream than i think it has been before um and so i'm i'm really proud of you know everyone my age that's like getting so involved but i also think that it's almost this culture right now where it's like if you see something that you want to change you have to speak up and say something because this is really you know our future that's at stake and that's why addressing climate change is so important to me and I'm sure so many other young people where it's like this is not an issue that we can just push 20 years or when we're adults and address it then like it needs to be addressed right now and because we're not 
Yep. You know, currently in politics and those positions of power, what we can do is raise our voices as much as we can. Absolutely. I, I think one of the challenges that um, myself and many other students that were involved in this space early in our college careers was trying to figure out, like, how do you tackle climate change, right? It's, it's a massive global problem. And we were trying to figure out, like, yes, it's a problem. Our climate's changing. It's going to lead to, you know, freaking and more intense wildfires, sea level rise, hurricanes, you know, windstorms so forth but it's like what can we do at uh, where we're at now today and what kind of individual action we take and so really trying to narrow the focus of our efforts was probably the most difficult you know probably barrier to overcome initially to be like okay what can we do on campus and then really start to dive more into the weeds and whether that's like okay well you know we need to encourage alternative forms of transportation on campus to reduce emissions from the transportation sector you know what what is the energy profile of the university like where is it getting its electricity from its gas um, are there ways in which we could seek to decarbonize the energy use of of the university and then how do we instill other types of behaviors and people around like you know waste reduction and what they consume and how how that leads to you know massive environmental impacts and solid waste contamination and, and, and so forth and so that was probably the biggest challenge is like where do we focus our efforts because there's so many different areas to dive into i i'm i wonder if you've had this kind of same challenge of trying to figure out like where can you make the most significant impact given that climate change is such a broad global problem yeah definitely i mean i think that was one of my big challenges coming into this movement of being incredibly overwhelmed at just how complex yeah. this issue is. And there's so much that you can just get lost in this rabbit hole of all of these crazy things that are happening. Um, but I think, you know, in the time between when you were a college student and now, especially me going to Berkeley, where it's like they are so focused on being so green and sustainable, I don't know if there's as much, um, I mean, obviously there's always progress to be made, but in terms of like starting up projects to become more sustainable. Um, a lot of that has been accomplished already. And I think where I find myself now is really focusing on environmental justice and equity, which um, I mean, obviously there's a whole history of that, but I think a lot of times this movement of, you know, very conservation or like science-based environmental activism has been pretty separate from this environmental justice movement and I think right now what we're seeing is this large youth movement that's focused on both and so I think that's where my interest lies right now and hopefully I'll get to explore this more in my next four years here but you know trying to see how this issue will impact people and especially disproportionately to some groups of people and really exploring yep. that and how we can promote you know promote certain groups of people and like help close some of these gaps that divide us currently. No, and I'm so glad to hear you kind of focus on this nexus between environmental justice and environmental issues because it's it's interesting enough, even over the last 10 years, um, working in Sacramento and being involved in, in developing and implementing various kind of clean energy policies across the board. You know, I've even noticed the policy conversations evolve from 2010, where it was very much like environmentalism and here are things that we need to do to reduce our impact to, to figuring out, well, how can we be more inclusive of those from different socioeconomic backgrounds and those that are being most impacted by these environmental problems, right? And you start to see the development of legal terms such as disadvantaged communities, right? I mean, there, there's a statutory term around what that means. And that term has started to be utilized in the development and implementation of various different policies and programs, um, you know, that, that in, in many different agencies that they're implementing. And so you start to see this, this focus mo more towards not just kind of broad, um, 
addressing of environmental issues, but focused on very specific communities and those that are the most impacted. And I think that has been probably one of the most significant changes that I've witnessed over the last 10 years is being more inclusive on these environmental issues, that it isn't just segmented to one demographic of individuals or one community. Um, it's everyone, but then there's also these communities that are most affected, and those are the ones that should really be focused on and be assisted and helped the most. Um, of course, obviously helping everybody else in the process, but you know, I, I think that focus and that inclusion and addressing those inequities has become more important. And I think that has been such like such an evolution, like I said, at, at the state level in terms of its energy and environmental policies. So I, I'm glad to see that you picked up on that. And hopefully that will continue for many years to come. It was definitely a learning process for me when I first got involved in activism. I was so overwhelmed by all these changing global environmental factors that I was very much the type of activist that's like, <laughs> it only matters that we're like addressing the scientific stuff like we can put all these social issues on hold they're not as important and that's just so incredibly false and I think as I've become more involved in activism totally. it's become so clear and I've learned from so many amazing other activists that you know there's a strength it's not a burden to have this intersectional approach and you can't actually solve climate change or any environmental degradation issues without also addressing all of these other inequities. And there's, you know, both a strength in numbers in terms of the more people you get involved, the more power you have, but also a lot of the systems that are perpetuating climate change are the same systems that are perpetuating racism and sexism and discrimination and all these other issues. And if we're not focusing on those, then we're also not really focusing on addressing climate change at all. Absolutely. And it, and it really serves as the foundation and basis for building coalitions, right? Um, and, and building that support across different stakeholder groups. And I, I see it a lot when it comes to development of legislation is like legislation that is the most prominent, it is the most comprehensive, or, and, and those that typically move through the legislative process are those that have a very strong, broad coalition of stakeholders behind it. So, you know, oftentimes you'll see these very traditional like environmental groups pushing for legislation, whether it's the Natural Resources Defense Council, Environmental Defense fund, but they don't necessarily represent the perspective of like, you know, environmental justice communities, right? But then you'll have other organizations like the Green Lining Institute, or you'll have the California Environmental Justice um, Association involved. Then you kind of see this broadened coalition, which really does start to influence what policies are developed, what problems are focused on, and, you know, how those policies are implemented over a period of time. And so I, I, it's, it is, it's really interesting to kind of see that nexus, but it's important because we need to have all these perspectives involved if we're really going to address these very, as you mentioned, complicated and complex environmental challenges. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you all are having this conversation. Um, you know, I'm thinking about different policy topics and how basically, you know, Ellie, you were the one that brought it up that said when you got to college, essentially now, um, a lot of those topics have already been addressed by people maybe a decade ago, like Grant, right? That were on the, the same college campus that pushed these initiatives because they needed to get it started. So now we're, we're, we're at this moment where we're recognizing this almost step forward, this need to be like, okay, we made these certain amount of steps, but clearly it hasn't been enough and there's more that we we kind of need to address in this area. Right, yeah. I mean, um, Grant, you brought it up about individual action, and I think that's a super important thing that we should emphasize. But also, I think um, something that I like to focus on, too, is how individual action is a part, but we also need to have these large-scale, like, sweeping reforms where there's a lot of, you know, collaboration between states and between countries and just, like, a whole global process of shifting to you know cleaner living and so I think that's where I see 
you know, a lot of this movement right now with youth is it's not just focusing on their individual communities, although that is a huge part. It's this, you know, protesting for these larger reforms that need to come from state governments and our national government. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm really glad to be at Berkeley where I don't have to necessarily channel all of my energy into starting out these new projects. And I'm glad that there are people like Grant before me to really put that work in. And now we can focus on taking that to the next level and really getting where we need to be on a large scale. Right. And I'm glad you brought up some specific policies and, and like deadlines basically that have been laid out. Um, you know, I was looking at SB 100 a little bit earlier with this, you know, really powerful statement of 100% clean energy by 2045. Um, and I think there's a lot um, would of power. You, would you all mind explaining a little bit more about what exactly that means to have clean energy um, by that point? Sure. Maybe Grant can expand a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just for- you know, I'll even kind of rewind to the early 2000s. So uh, some of you may be familiar with this. And uh, I, re- I definitely remember, I think it was in middle school at the time, but we had the California electricity crisis in 2000, 2001, where there was rolling blackouts throughout the state. It was caused for a variety of very complicated reasons that I, that I won't dive into. And some of those, you know, causal factors are still debate today, especially within academic circles. Um, but, you know, one of the outcomes of the electricity crisis was, was this recognition that California really needed to diversify its electric generation portfolio because at the time California was very dependent upon electric generation fueled by natural gas primarily fossil gas and so you know recognizing that the legislature passed and the governor signed um, the first renewables portfolio standard policy which basically requires retail sellers of electricity in California to meet a certain percentage of their electricity sales by eligible renewable resources. And those resources include, you know, wind energy, solar voltaic power, um, solar thermal, uh, electric generation, you know, biomass, so on and so forth. And it's very specific in what types of renewables count and what other types of renewables don't count, which I can get more into. Um, And the renewable portfolio standard has been um, adjusted and enhanced over many years. I mean, it was, it was adjusted back in 2011 it was it was adjusted in 2015 and then ellie to your point it was adjusted again in um sb 100 which now sets a goal that by 2030 um 60 percent of electric retail sales that the uh electric retail sellers sell here in california has to come from eligible renewable resources um and not only that but the goal but the bill also established this goal that by 2045 all electric retail sales will be met from zero carbon resources you know with all of these policies that have a lot of these deadlines i mean i know as an activist there's kind of been a lot of back and forth um with some of the leaders in these activist circles that there are not like the policies that are being created are not aggressive enough mm-hmm. um and i mean i guess also looking at you know how the planet is changing all of these reinforcing feedback loops that just keep accelerating everything do you think that these policies that are being created and implemented need to be a bit more flexible in terms of being able to adjust some of these years that they have as goals or do you think that where we're at right now is good enough so i would say for at least california at the state level i mean the goals that have been set so far in terms of ghg reductions and some of the milestones and targets we have for you know decarbonizing um not just the power sector but even 
Governor Newsom's recent executive order to phase out fossil fuels in um, the transportation sector for, uh, by 2035. I mean, those are these are very aggressive um, targets in my mind. And and the reason, and, and maybe they're not as aggressive as others would like to think they should be. But you know, when you look at the data and when you look through at history on how long it takes for energy transitions to take place, it happens very slowly because these are industries that are multi, multi, multi billions of dollars. And the amount of money that gets invested in like the gas system, for example, or the electric sector or transportation, um, you know, they're four assets that are long lived assets and they take a while before they ramp down. But there are certainly mechanisms that the state is working on to really accelerate these investments in clean energy and uh, clean transportation, um, you know, clean forms of transportation, um, but also trying to move away from like fossil fuels and other types of resources. But I, I think the goals that are out there now are realistic. Um, and I think they're also pretty ambitious. You know, we may have to rethink some of our goals in the context of what happens at the federal level. And then of course, at the national level, um, I, I think what's been probably one of the most significant challenges for California, especially over the last four years, is the lack of um, support that we've received from the federal government. And actually, I wouldn't even say support. I'll say, you know, the, the federal administration has been very active at undermining, you know, California's climate. Part of what's going to happen in this election is like, okay, are we going to see you know, the continuation of the existing administration who is just going to ignore climate change and not even consider it a problem. And again, if you don't consider something a problem, then the last thing you're going to do is develop solutions. Or are we going to elect somebody who says, not only is this a problem, this is a significant problem. And frankly, like you look at the Biden-Harris, you know, climate plan, and a lot of the elements are pulled from what's being done here in California. I mean, we really are a pilot and we're really demonstrating like what other countries and other states can, can really do in this space. Yeah, and I like that you brought up um, using California as an example for how to address climate change while also not looking at that, you know, policy and economic shift as something that's a burden or is going to hurt people. I think that's a lot of the discussion right now um, between political parties is like, oh, but if we get rid of like all of our current energy sources, look at how much of an impact that's going to have on the economy. And I think California is this amazing example of this is not just a way for us to address this huge global crisis, but it's also a way for us to innovate and move forward and, you know, better life for everyone and just like generally, you know, bolster our economy in a way that's not going to hurt people in the long term. Towards the environment and climate, I've certainly seen a shift amongst people I know uh, and the attention that they're giving to the environment and the importance that it's brought to to their attention, to the attention of their families and friends. Uh, Ellie, do you think that you've seen, in, what are some wins and some, some losses that you've seen um, as a result of the fires in California? Right, well, I mean, starting off, you know, when there's people who are evacuating or losing their homes multiple years in a row, it just puts it straight out exactly how, you know, important this issue is. And I think that, you know, also given COVID, there is, like you mentioned, such a, a huge focus right now in, in climate change. But um, in terms of, you know, the wildfires and forest management, um, I think going back to what Grant was mentioning about federal versus state policies, that is a huge example of where we're at right now, where, you know, we have, I think it's kind of funny, I, I was a little bit misinformed about this before, but, um, you know, you see Trump criticizing Governor Newsom in California for our lack of forest management, but the federal government owns the majority of 
you know, forests here. So it's really, you know, up to them to be also helping in this forest management. Um, but I think in terms of some wins, I know back in August, um, Trump and Newsom sat down and they made an agreement that uh, both the federal and state government would each, you know, help, um, you know, disagreement between California and the federal government in terms of what the science actually is and what we need to be doing. And I think, you know, both the federal and state government taking an equal role right now in, in helping out in California is kind of interesting considering the breakdown of just how much land the federal government owns here and needs to manage here compared to, you know, what the California government um, needs to look after. But I guess that is a win um, on one hand, but it also lays out how this is um, a very partisan issue when it really should not be at all. And I think that when it comes to science and like taking care of people and like forest management, it's very frustrating to see this dialogue back and forth that is not um, where it should be, which is just agreement on the facts and then working to address that. Yeah, and you know, they, they say that those closest to the issue tend to know the issue uh, a little bit more. And I, I feel like that's that's how California kind of is when it comes to, to fires and, and uh, climate change in that way. Um, and, and we, some of us in California have, have experienced fires for years and, and almost as long as we can remember. And I remember when this past, you know, kind of fire season, quote unquote, started, um, I was thinking, okay, well, this happens every year. It's going to be managed. It's going to be all right. And then it just kind of kept on happening. And then the sky turned red and we couldn't go outside and there was ash all over my car. And I was like, okay, I know we normally deal with fires, but this is quite beyond the norm that we kind of go beyond. And it turned out that, you know, uh, this, this fire season has uh, created record number uh, record numbers of destruction uh, within not only California, but also the entire West coast, including Washington uh, and other States. Um, so I guess Grant, where, where do we go? Where do we go from here? What do we have to do? Um, and I guess, what are the next steps and what might you be thinking? What I've been really involved in is trying to prevent wildfires from being ignited from electric utility equipment, right? I mean, that their equipment, um, namely in PG&E territory, but even in Southern California, Edison territory, ignited some of the biggest wildfires in 2017 and 2018. And so there's been a concerted effort at the Public Utilities Commission working with the legislature and the governor to figure out how do we make sure that electric utility equipment doesn't ignite wildfires? Um, and how do we also ensure that it doesn't bankrupt them because of all the liability associated with it and, and pending lawsuits? And so there were some new policies put in place to create this like wildfire utility insurance fund. Um, the utilities are making billion dollars investments in hardening their uh, electric infrastructure. They're going out and doing more inspections. You know, we're overseeing a lot of those inspections. They are improving their situational awareness. They're adding more control functions to their electric system so that they can like de-energize and re-energize certain portions of it. Um, but it's going to take time. And like I said, it's, it's going to cost a lot of money. And this is funding that's going to come, at least in this circumstance, from electric ratepayers, you know, people that are the customers of the utilities. And so, um, you know, the, the challenges are there. And I, I don't know if I have like the, the silver bullet, I don't think anybody does, but it's going to be, you know, a concerted effort across the board um, at the local level, at the state level, and then hopefully at the federal level. Yeah, I like a lot of the points you brought up, Grant. I think that you know, even though the wildfires in California are not solely caused by climate change, it is an example of both how complex this issue is and also how thinking about environmental issues is not something, I think I hear this argument sometimes where it's like, oh, you have a lot of privilege if you have the time to think about climate change as an issue. But if we're looking at the fires, this is affecting people and it's just so clear how 
thinking about the environment, thinking about the climate is not a privilege, an issue of privilege necessarily in terms of who can think about it because this is affecting people and, you know, looking at farm workers and the air pollution, they don't have the ability to take a day off. And so they're out there disproportionately exposed, same with homeless people. And it's like, I think, you know, I'm glad we talked about the wildfires because it is such a clear example. It's almost a smaller example of this global issue where it's like, it's just how important and how much these issues are going to affect people. And I think that's why, as you brought up the election, it's super important to, you know, advocate for people to get civically engaged and to vote because this is not some large issue that you can just put totally. off. This is affecting people right now and it will continue to affect people moving forward. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the election and the importance of that when it comes to wildfires, but also on climate change as a whole. What do you think needs to be done and, and what would you tell young people listening and current policy professionals who are listening and really just the general pu- public about how they can get involved and what they can do um, to be part of that change. Right now, it, it is so overwhelming um, that it seems like, oh my gosh, we need the whole world to get on board with us. How do I even, how do I even begin? I mean, I would say I, I understand as a young person the difficulty that this issue poses, you know, being 18 and then having this huge crisis that you're like freaking out about. Um, But I think it's important to recognize that as a young person, this issue is not going to be something that you can wait to address. You know, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. It's like we need young people to get involved right now because the decisions that are being being made right now are essential in determining how our lives are going to play out. And so for young people, I would recommend, you know, really taking that first step and becoming involved, whether that's joining an organization or becoming you know, um, more well-versed in what climate change is and the specifics and just finding ways to get involved. And then on the flip side, for policy professionals, it's so important to have young voices at the table and being active and reaching out and trying to have more representation is so vital, but also because young people have a lot of good ideas and I think can be very influential in um, creating policies that are going to help change the world right now. So... I couldn't like agree more in terms of having like younger individuals at the table. I mean, I, you know, Michael will know this too, even having worked in student government and and Demi, you'll know this too, is like, you know, you're often working with administrators on the university who are in their forties, fifties, sixties, maybe even older that have a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge. And you're coming there and you're all blue eyed and you're like, here's all the things that I want to do. And I want to, you know, change the campus experience, but it's, it's, it can be really intimidating, but like just to be at the table and having those conversations is like, is such an opportunity opportunity and for people to like listen to you and really be like wow like that's actually a really good idea so 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 along those lines I mean I think some of the the recommendations I would give for for young professionals and you know those that are in undergrad and will be exiting you know undergrad soon is like find your passion and not only that, like really try to focus your time and attention, like your time, your energy, your resources are limited, right? And they're also precious. And so use them effectively and, and efficiently to change oftentimes is incremental. And what I have learned is that it, if you really want to make like sustained institutional change is like Ellie, to your point is like, you got to get involved. You have to have those conversations, but you have to be persistent and that it takes a considerable amount of time and effort and energy. And it can be really taxing on you if you really even want to make the most like, you know, minute change. But it's like, if that's what you want to see and that's what you want to dedicate your life to, like you got to be in it for the long haul. And I just want to give a little shout out to the middle school and high schoolers. I, I, I was you like a month ago <laughs> and I get it I really do um, I just want you guys to know that like this movement is 
for you and by you also and you don't need to wait to be in college or to be a professional to solve these issues and you know it took me taking one small step to get involved um, to really open up a bunch of doors for me and it's so doable and you know just also take care of yourself I know how taxing you know working on environmental policy and environmental issues is um, but yeah so I just wanted to have that little shout out to all my you know minors because I get it um, and it's motivating. <laughs> but your voice matters so much in this movement and there is a seat at the table for you when I hear you both talking and, and Grant, I think you mentioned it, what we need at the table nowadays. And I think it's been happening, but I haven't really heard many people say it so explicitly is we need passionate young people with passionate policy professionals working together to address issues of the future. Thank you so much. This is really, really special. Um, and I'm very excited that Michael and I had the chance to listen to it. I'm really excited that all of our listeners do as well. Um, just really impressive talking to both of you and yeah, as a, as a young person on the call, I'm like, I'm empowered <laughs> to go do something the, the next, as soon as we hang up. So I'm um, yeah. really thank you both. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to having more conversations and uh, seeing Ellie as a policy fellow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ellie, please feel free to reach out to me at any time. I, you know, I'd love to help in any way that I can in kind of your career trajectory. And same goes to, to all of you. And I really appreciate you both hosting this and having this conversation with Ellie. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you, Grant and Michael and Demi and Jarrett behind the scenes for helping with this. Thank you all for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. This was a podcast recording of PolicyWise. We are your hosts, Michael and Demi. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Ford and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Jared Amonos produced this episode and the music was created by Ian Post and sourced from artistlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussion with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.